Welcome to the Practical Employment Law Podcast, a podcast covering all aspects of American employment law. I'm your host, Mark Chumley. It is time again for an update on the latest in labor and employment law developments. To remind you, updates are all based on recent cases that have been decided, new laws that have been passed, and general news from the world of labor and employment law. I'll also apologize for the long wait between episodes, but 2022 is off to a busy start for me. So today's episode is ripped from the headlines, as they say. Two big recent stories in the news have involved employment law topics, the NFL discrimination lawsuit and the resignation of CNN President Jeff Zucker. And both of these stories, by the way, have a lot to tell us about employment law. So first, the widely reported lawsuit against the NFL and three teams by former head coach of the Miami Dolphins, Brian Flores. For those of you who don't know the story, the lawsuit includes some pretty bad allegations. According to the complaint allegations, Mr. Flores received some text messages from New England Patriots head coach Bill Belichick congratulating him on getting hired for the New York Giants head coaching position. The only problem was he had not yet interviewed for the job. It became clear in the text exchange that Belichick had not intended to text Brian Flores, but it actually meant to text Brian Dabble, who was named Giants head coach. The problem here, of course, is that Brian Dabble is white and Brian Flores is black. This is especially significant because the NFL has the so-called Rooney Rule, which requires teams to interview minority candidates for their open positions. The league has amended that rule in recent years and now says teams must hold an in-person interview with at least one external minority candidate for any general manager or head coach opening. So one big issue in the lawsuit is Brian Flores' allegation that he participated in a sham interview held for no other reason than to comply with the Rooney Rule, and the the Giants had no intention of hiring him for their head coach position. Naturally, the NFL and the teams named in the suit deny the allegations, and how this plays out remains to be seen, although I think it's pretty clear that Belichick will be deposed and have lawyers looking through his text messages. This is the most embarrassing thing that's happened to Belichick since Spygate, or maybe Deflategate, or maybe Bengalsgate, or the headset thing with the Steelers. Man, this guy has a lot of baggage. Regardless, what can employers learn from this lawsuit? First, the obvious. I've had so many cases over the years that start with the errant email or errant text message. It's just really unbelievable how often it happens, whether it's communicating with the wrong person because of autofill addresses or leaving a confidential trailing email in an email chain. It just happens all the time. And all I can say on this one is to be very careful about electronic communications and understand that they never go away. There is a more significant element to the NFL case, however. It's actually something that I've been waiting for for well over a decade that came up in a lawsuit I defended. Back then, I defended a discrimination lawsuit, and one thing that I noticed in preparing the case was that several highly placed members of management had made some very damaging public statements about the company's hiring practices. Shockingly, it never came up in that old lawsuit, but since then, I've seen similar scenarios, and I've always wondered when the plaintiff bar is going to finally catch on to the rich source of evidence that's sitting out there in so many cases. Well, question answered. Let me read to you from the complaint in the NFL lawsuit. Quote, 
The NFL's senior vice president and chief diversity and inclusion officer stated, quote, any criticism we get for lack of representation at the GM and head coach positions we deserve. We see that we're not where we want to be. We have to do much better. We're focusing on all roles at the league, and all these roles are key roles. But certainly at the top of the house, general manager and head coach, that's the responsibility of the NFL to make sure that we're representing our current fan base and we're representing those that are in the league today. And if you look at it right now, we're grossly underrepresented, end quote. Grossly underrepresented. Wow, that might be hard to walk back in his deposition. Again, hard to say where this lawsuit goes, but my point is that a lot of companies have made a lot of damaging statements and even admissions in connection with diversity efforts, and these statements are very often public and available for any enterprising plaintiff's attorney to make use of. Will this become a trend? I don't know. But it would be wise for companies to think carefully about what statements they are making publicly and in internal documents that might come up later in employment litigation. On a related note, companies need to be careful what they say once litigation is initiated. Even in the NFL case, after initially denying the claims, the NFL's commissioner put out a much more nuanced statement that concludes that there is, quote, much work to do, end quote, and that the results of the NFL's diversity efforts have been, quote, unacceptable, end quote. While not admitting anything outright, I can see a lot of time being spent in a deposition on those statements. Final thought on the NFL case, I think there's a lot of pressure on managers these days when it comes to recruiting and hiring and making sure that various goals and initiatives related to diversity are met. It is not surprising that some managers may try to cut corners and comply with standards on paper only. This is not an easy problem to solve, and I don't think it will be the last time we hear about it. The next story that has been big news this week is Jeff Zucker's resignation from CNN because of a consensual relationship with a female co-worker. This came out because of an investigation into former anchor Chris Cuomo, but the relationship had apparently existed for some time. Some news outlets have described it as an open secret that dated back many years. Zucker's paramour will apparently keep her employment at CNN. This is another all-too-common scenario. I've said it before on this podcast, workplace romance, fishing off the company pier, whatever you call it, often leads to litigation. Now, technically, there's nothing illegal about a consensual relationship in the workplace. The problems come when a relationship ends or changes, and very often harassment claims follow. This is particularly problematic if the individuals involved in the romance are in the same chain of command and one has influence over the other's career prospects. Some would take the position that a truly consensual relationship is not possible in such circumstances. For all of these reasons, many companies have policies against workplace romances broadly, or often more narrowly, barring relationships between managers and subordinate employees. Now, the problem for very highly placed visible executives like Zucker is that most everyone is subordinate to them, so best to avoid the issue altogether. But, to quote Emily Dickinson and Selena Gomez, the heart wants what it wants. Another problem for CNN is the allegation that the relationship, which apparently is not acceptable to the company, was well-known and ongoing. Now, apparently this is disputed, but it is worth noting that it is always a problem when the bosses don't follow the rules. Aside from the morale issues, it creates an environment where the rules are not taken seriously. 
It's no secret that CNN has had a number of embarrassing scandals recently, and one cannot help but wonder if the lax view of the rules came from the top down. It's also interesting that Zucker's paramour is keeping her employment. If one half of a forbidden relationship remains employed, it is usually the one who would most likely have a claim against the company, so from that perspective, it's not unusual. However, companies very often terminate the couple, reasoning that both knowingly broke the rules. And there is a certain wisdom to that approach, because it happens frequently that the remaining employee from the couple has ongoing issues in the workplace. For example, the employees who liked the terminated half of the couple have an axe to grind with a retained employee, and many other employees have a lack of respect for the retained employee given the public nature of what happened and the view of some that the retained employee shared the blame. In my experience, this kind of situation does not usually work out for the employee who stays on. So what should employers do with workplace romances? Well, first, if you make a rule, you have to be willing to enforce it uniformly. So if you're going to ban workplace romance, it has to apply to everyone and be enforced against everyone, including the CEO, your highest producing salesperson, and anyone else who breaks the rule. This alone should give employers pause about making stringent rules. Large companies should be doing regular harassment training and have very well-publicized lines of communication for reporting issues. All reports should be taken seriously and investigated. When a consensual relationship is discovered and it's not a policy violation, there's not much for the employer to do unless and until a complaint arises. Some employers with policies that permit relationships for employees who do not work together will have to transfer one of the employees so they're not in the same chain of command. Years ago, there was a trend of having employees involved in consensual relationships sign agreements, so-called love contracts, acknowledging the consensual nature of the relationship, confirming relevant company policies, and noting that if harassment occurred, it would be promptly reported. These initially became popular more than 10 years ago, and then they kind of faded away. After the Me Too movement got a lot of publicity, the love contract made a bit of a comeback, and I still run across them from time to time. I don't think there's anything wrong with them, except that they're not particularly effective, because the person in the relationship who is in the position of inferior power can always claim that they were forced or coerced into signing. And regardless, the problem typically comes up when a relationship ends and the harassment allegations arise. Even if a report is made at that point, the damage may already be done, and if it's not handled just right, the love contract provides little protection. In the end, the workplace romance is a problem without a clear solution for employers. For that reason, it is something that should be discussed by managers to make a decision about what approach is best for each workforce and business. This has been the Practical Employment Law Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please watch for future episodes wherever you get podcasts. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you would like to contact me about any aspect of the podcast, my email address is mchumley at kmklaw.com and my full contact information is in the show notes. This podcast was created for general informational purposes only and does not constitute legal advice or a solicitation to provide legal services. Although we attempt to ensure that the podcast is complete, accurate, and up-to-date, we assume no responsibility for its completeness, accuracy, or timeliness. The information in this podcast is not intended to create, and listening to it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. 
Listeners should not act upon this information without seeking professional legal counsel.